Have you ever searched for someone in a crowd, looking for them, listening for them? Maybe it's a a friend you haven't seen uh, in some time, you're you're supposed to meet them, or or perhaps it's a stranger who who you only know by description or perhaps by the sound of their their voice, having had a phone call with them. Have you ever kind of scanned a a sea of faces, done a, a double take, or maybe you thought you heard their voice and you turned around to look for them? Have you ever searched and looked. Sometimes we, we do uh, a double take, or sometimes we, we listen again. We, we think we, we see someone with, with some of the traits we're looking for, or maybe the voice that we're looking for, or listening for, but after further investigation, no, 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 that, that's, that's not the right person, that's not who I'm, I'm looking for. They're not quite the one. Well, That's kind of been our experience with the book of Kings. Uh, We have been looking for God's king. We've been listening for him. We've been waiting for him. And we continue that search today. We're going to look at at two kings, actually. We look at these kings. We see their faults and their flaws. And so we find, no, 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 this is not the king I'm looking for, but... But maybe there's a shadow of something I'm looking for in them. Well, this is what we do this morning as we we search the scriptures, as we study the end of 1 Kings and the the beginning of 2 Kings. Uh, We're looking for the characteristics of our long-awaited king, the Lord Jesus Christ, in these scriptures. If you haven't done so, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to 1 Kings Chapter 22, we're going to begin in verse 41 this morning. Uh, If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find the passage beginning on page 305. 305. This morning our aim is to, as I said, study the end of the book of 1 Kings and the beginning of the book of 2 Kings. And and you may be puzzling over why we're taking this approach. Uh, We're taking this approach because originally, and I've said this every week, uh, of this sermon series. My, my children reminded me that I say this every week. Uh, this past week, uh, we're studying this, we're taking this approach because originally these two books were one book with one message. The, the book of Kings uh, was divided likely as a, a matter of convenience. Scroll sizes in the ancient Near East were, were often limited. The longer your work, the, the longer and the larger your scroll. So in order to keep the size of the scroll somewhat manageable, And in order to allow the author to write all that he wanted to, it seems that uh, the book of Kings was divided up into 1st and 2nd Kings. Together, the the message of 1st and 2nd Kings is that despite Israel's sin and the sins of her kings, God's true king will come. Though the book describes a descent from the the golden era of Solomon, that great age and era, uh, it describes a descent into the grueling era of the exile. And, and the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha and other prophets throughout the book, they, they expose Israel's disobedience to the law of God. And yet the, the book concludes with hope. It concludes with hope because a king, a, a son of David, is being released from prison. And so this, this gives us hope that God's true and final king might yet come. That God will fulfill his word to keep his promise, to send his son to sit on the throne of his father David and to rescue his people from their sins. Well, the text that we're looking at this morning comes on the heels of the death of Ahab. 
Ahab is a shadow that looms large over our text, even as we meet two new kings. Ahab's ally, Jehoshaphat, and Ahab's son, Ahaziah, are addressed. Jehoshaphat was an ally with Ahab in going out to war with him, but now uh, Jehoshaphat gets his own kind of compressed account. Uh, we read of Jehoshaphat in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 41 to 50. And then we read of Ahaziah beginning in 2 Kings, uh, sorry, 1 Kings 22, beginning in verse 51. And his account extends through into chapter 1 of 2 Kings, verse 18. Jehoshaphat is a uh, compromising king. But Ahaziah is a consistent king. Uh, in fact, those two points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. A, a compromising king and a consistent king. And I hope you'll see this in the text yourself. Let, let's begin with our, our first point. A compromising king. Uh, and as we think about this, let's begin by reading 1 Kings 22. Beginning there in verse 41, we'll read through verse 50. 1 Kings 22, verse 41. Jehoshaphat, the son of Asa began to reign over Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 25 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of Shilhai. He walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet... The high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Jehoshaphat also made peace with the king of Israel. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat and his might that he showed and how he warred, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And from the land he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes who remained in the days of his father Asa. There was no king in Edom. A deputy was king. Jehoshaphat made ships of Tarshish to go to Ophir for gold. But they did not go, for the ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber. Then Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my servants go with your servants in the ships. But Jehoshaphat was not willing, and Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers, and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father, and Jehoram his son reigned in his place. Well, with this uh, compressed account of Jehoshaphat's life, we see that the author of Kings, he, he bounces back and forth between the southern and the northern kingdoms in a roughly chronological fashion. Here the author momentarily leaves the northern kingdom to turn his attention to the southern kingdom. Jehoshaphat is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah and he rules at roughly the same time as Ahab and Ahab's son Ahaziah. They were rulers over the northern kingdom of Israel. Now with this compressed account of Jehoshaphat's life, we're also reminded that the author of Kings, he, he actually expands and contracts he, he speeds up and slows down his, his narrative kind of at will. Ahab, the, the previous king that we've been looking at, Ahab, the king of the, the northern kingdom of Israel, he received six chapters of attention. Whereas Jehoshaphat, we see here, he receives a mere ten verses. The author has his reasons for this kind of expansion and contraction. 
When the author slows down, he especially wants us to catch something about a king. And it's usually this. He was terrible. Uh, He was obstinate. He was headstrong. He was worthy of judgment. Ahab's wicked life stands in sharp contrast to Jehoshaphat's life. Jehoshaphat, as you can see from verse 43, he he actually receives a a positive evaluation. And when we get a positive evaluation in the book of Kings, this is basically it. We're told that he did not turn aside from the Lord and that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. So, So when you hear that in the book of Kings, that's basically the author's kind of positive evaluation on a king. And what this means in the book of Kings is that Jehoshaphat did not give himself to the worship of false gods, but instead followed Yahweh. Now, perhaps you're thinking, that's great and all, but the very next statement, right? The very next statement in verse 43 is, what? Yet, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, if that's what you were thinking, then I would commend you for your observation. Uh, Yes, while Jehoshaphat does overall receive a, a kind of positive evaluation as a king, he clearly does have his flaws doesn't he? He's he's clearly not perfect. In fact, to all outward appearances, he's living kind of a contradictory life, isn't he? He's kind of a living contradiction himself. He's He's a king who compromises. And this should cause us to long and look for the the better, the promised, the forever king. On the one hand, we could recount all of the positive things that Jehoshaphat does. He does not go after false gods. Verse 43, he was bold and courageous in battle. Verse 45, he exterminated the remnant of the male cult prostitutes living in the land. Verse 46, he had a a deputy rule over Edom. That's what the author is implying there in verse 47. And and in, in saying that, what he's saying is that Jehoshaphat, he subjected the Gentiles. He extended the reign of his kingdom. He refused to continue his alliance with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. At verse 49 there, uh, he ensured that the kingdom would have a son from the line of David to reign in his place. You see that in verse 50. These are, these are all very good and right things for the king of Judah to pursue. Jehoshaphat did all of these positive things. And yet, even in the midst of these positive things, we see that he had flaws. That he compromised. And these flaws reveal to us that he's not the promised king and Messiah we're waiting for. He's not the king that we've been looking for. He's not the king who will save his people from their sins. Because as we see in verse 43, right? He did not take away the high places. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. In other words, the people still kept on sinning. And what is more, Jehoshaphat made peace with the king of Israel, with Ahab. That's who is mentioned there in verse 44. And, and do you know how he made peace with Ahab? Well, he, he, married, he married Ahab's daughter. And at best, it's risky to marry a daughter from the line of Jezebel. But in the very least, you don't make friends with the enemy of God. And, and do you know why his ships were wrecked at Ezion Geber? It was because he not only made peace with Ahab, but because at one point he also formed an alliance with Ahab's son, Ahaziah, whom we'll soon see consistently lived in rebellion against the living God. Ahaziah was also an enemy of God. You see, before Jehoshaphat was against going after gold with Ahaziah, he was for it. He compromised by forming an alliance 
with a rebellious king for gold. Why do we have this account of a kind of living contradiction? A king who, who compromises here in the book of Kings. Well, one, because it happened. Two, to show us that both the northern and the southern kingdom were still halting between Yahweh and other gods. The people were still sacrificing at the high places. The, the cancer of compromise ran deep within the nations, even if a leader like Jehoshaphat was personally faithful. Right? This, this testimony tells us that the southern kingdom was worthy of judgment, just like the northern kingdom. The, the fault lines in the kingdoms were set. The trajectory toward judgment and exile has been exposed. Jehoshaphat was a, a living contradiction. He was, he was good, and he was bad. Perhaps we could be so bold to put it like this. He was a saint and a sinner. He was personally devoted, but publicly divided. Do you know anyone like that? Have you ever met anyone like that? Are we ever like that? Jehoshaphat was a a living contradiction. And he was a living contradiction because, because he made compromises. And I think this ought to call us to reflect upon our own lives. Right? The, the people of God can be personally devoted to Jesus and still be really sinful, really foolish, and compromising. And at the end of the day, the, the real question that we all have to face is whether or not our conduct matches our confession. Right? Is, there, is there contradiction? Is there compromise within us? And the answer has got to be yes, right? Uh, we, we call ourselves Christians, we gather here, we go out there, and, and then sometimes, maybe not always, but sometimes our decisions and deeds conceal our discipleship and devotion to Jesus. Sometimes our lives reveal compromise rather than, than consecration. And this side of glory, each one of us will be something of a living contradiction. Uh, This side of glory, we are sinner and saint. This side of glory, we will compromise by exchanging righteousness, sadly, sometimes for unrighteousness. By God's grace, more and more, we will die to sin and live to righteousness. More and more, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will put sin to death and, and put on holiness. Lord willing, more and more we will, through gospel-powered transformation, trust, and obedience, live less and less contradictory lives and compromising lives. But until glory, we will do battle with the world, with the flesh, and with the devil. Until glory, sadly, some contradiction will remain. Some compromise will still occur. So what should we do? I think we should take a few lessons from this text. One... Remember that Jehoshaphat received a positive evaluation. I think that actually ought to encourage us as we think about our own lives. This living contradiction, this man of compromise that is Jehoshaphat, received a positive evaluation. That's the author's evaluation, which I think means it's God's evaluation. Our God knows the frailty and fallenness of our frame. That's why he sent Christ to save us and redeem us. We ought to praise God that he is not content to leave us there. We ought to give thanks that he has placed his spirit within us to give us a a, a kind of discontent with the unrighteousness in our lives. 
We should also be generous with our fellow believers who are struggling, who are uh, exhibiting sometimes uh, a kind of contradiction and compromise in their lives. This is not to excuse sin. We can never do that. We can never excuse sin. We should be generous, though. Realize that there's, there's always room to grow, right? Finite believers have infinite room to grow into the space, the image, and likeness of the one who is himself infinite. We should be careful of expecting perfection in this life. We call for nothing less than holiness, and still we recognize that we will grow and triumph over sin in fits and starts. Sanctification, growth in holiness, is a jagged line of growth in grace. Uh, Sometimes we feel the sharpness of that edge more acutely than others. Uh, This living contradiction of our being sinners and saints is not a cause or an excuse for lethargy, laziness, or licentiousness, but an inducement to pursue a life that is wholly devoted, completely devoted to the Lord. Those who are truly converted are are never satisfied with, with actually being a living contradiction or compromising with unrighteousness. And remember, Jehoshaphat made some amendments to his life and conduct, didn't he? Right? He he built ships to go out with Ahaziah. But when the Lord wrecked them, he learned not to continue on in that alliance. Right? We may dare hope that Jehoshaphat wanted to live and please the Lord. When and where we find compromise in our lives, we're called to repent. To to turn around and to, to run to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And, and when and where we find compromise, we plead with God for forgiveness, we seek Him for mercy, and we believe that His grace is indeed greater than all of our sin. We should be stirred up by our faults and flaws and fallenness. Stirred up to invite other believers into our lives to gently and graciously expose to our sight where we have compromised with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we should be spurred on to love and good deeds. Walking in patience with other believers too who are struggling and spurring them on to love and good deeds. And as we want others to be patient with us, so we should be patient with them. Still we must exhibit a a persistent pursuit of holiness even as we lovingly nudge others on to holiness. Satan, I think, would love to discourage us by pointing out our contradictions and compromises. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like Satan is kind of sticking his finger in your chest or kind of poking you in the eye and saying, see here, see here? Yes, I I think he would love to discourage us. He loves to hold our sins before our eyes. And we do honestly need to take a look at our sins. And we also need to get our Savior before our eyes. Right? God, He has not freed us from sin's presence, but He has set us free from its power to enslave and condemn. Sin is not as mighty as our Savior. The Christian life is one of ongoing conflict. Conflict against our contradictions and compromise with sin. In the words of one believer, we are to be constant in arms, to which I would add, and remember that Christ carries you in His.
right? We are to be constant in arms and remember that Christ carries us in His. We must ever remember that our compromises with sin have been credited to Christ and fully paid for at the cross. We've considered Jehoshaphat a compromising king. He's not the king we're looking for. And now we turn and consider Ahaziah, a consistent king. And this is our second point. Let's begin by reading uh, 1 Kings 22, verses 51 to 53. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. Well, you see here, like his father Ahab, Ahaziah gets his own compressed introduction to be followed by actually a kind of concentrated focus on his faithlessness. Uh, here, the author of Kings can, can kind of hardly wait to tell us, look, look, the apple does not fall too far from the tree, right? Ahaziah's reign will be consistent, really, with the character of his, his father's reign. He did what was evil in the sight of the war. He, he walked in the way of his father. And if it were not enough, we're told that he also walked in the way of that gem of a woman, Jezebel, right? He, he did what Jeroboam did. He, he worshipped idols and false gods. He did not break from the evil reigns that preceded him. No, he had a kind of consistent reign. We're told there in verse 53 that he served Baal and worshipped and provoked the Lord. Notice, notice how the author holds Ahaziah personally responsible for his sins. Yes, yes, he, he inherited his sins from his father and mother, and yet he's personally responsible for his sin. Children, pay attention to this. Young people, pay attention to this. He served Baal. He worshipped false gods. He provoked Yahweh. And he did it in every way his father did. We're all personally responsible for our sins. Remember how bad Ahab was, according to the author of Kings. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 33, we read this. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And with verse 53, the author of Kings is telling us that Ahaziah was just as bad as his dad. Right? Where Jehoshaphat's life was marked by contradiction, Ahaziah's life was marked by a kind of consistency. He, he never turned aside from worshiping false gods. He always lived a rebellious life. Ahaziah openly and defiantly rejected Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the idea behind the word provoke there in verse 53 is that Ahaziah was constantly seeking to incite the Lord to anger. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you realize the danger you are in? Do you realize who you are goading to anger? by your ongoing rebellion against the living God? Do, do you realize you provoke the God who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? Your consistent rebellion will only be met 
by a consistent punishment. There needs to be a change. You need to come to repentance, to a, a turning from your sin and a turning to the mercy of God. Sadly, many think that on their deathbed they will turn to God in faith. But, but the truth is, is that many die, maybe most die, as they lived. The truth is, is that more often than not, we die consistent with how we have lived. That's the story of Ahaziah's end. This is, this is a deathbed story that we're about to get in 2 Kings chapter 1. Just take a look. Let's read 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 to 8. And see for yourself how Ahaziah's life ends as it began in rebellion against God. Verses 1 to 8 of 2 Kings chapter 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord, Yahweh, said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is, because, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah. The Tishbite. Let's just pause there for now. As, as 2 Kings opens, the story of Ahaziah, you see, he continues. Unless you think that the opening of 2 Kings contains kind of a non sequitur, right? That phrase, that this mention that Moab is rebelling. Uh, just re remember that one of the things that the author of Kings has been doing is he's, he's comparing and contrasting the reigns of Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah. So, so, so how does Moab's rebellion kind of connect to that contrast. Well, uh, re remember that Moabites were Gentiles and Je Jehoshaphat subdued the Gentiles of Edom, 1 Kings uh, 22, verse 47. Jehoshaphat had a, had a deputy ruling over Edom. He had everything well in hand in the southern kingdom of Judah. He was ruling over the Gentiles, but Ahaziah, in contrast, right, in the northern kingdom of Israel, he was, well, he was not a capable ruler, we'll say. He was not able to suppress the rebellion of the Gentiles, so the Moabites. And the author of Kings is, is actually making another, another wonderful connection between the beginning of the book of 2 Kings and the beginning of the book of 1 Kings. Uh, though the division of scrolls was something of a matter of convenience, the author has, has cleverly opened 2 Kings the same way he opened 1 Kings. He opens 2 Kings the same way he opens 1 Kings, namely that a king is on his deathbed and he's engaging with a prophet of God. Remember, 1 Kings opened with David on his deathbed. 
And he was engaging Nathan, the prophet Nathan, in order to secure an heir to reign on his throne. This time, though, there's going to be a little difference in the beginning of this book. This time, in 2 Kings, a king is on his deathbed engaging with a prophet who promises that really he will have no heir. Ahaziah's fall through the lattice is emblematic of what is taking place in the northern kingdom of Israel. The king and the kingdom are falling. They are falling and they will not get up. This is a fall unto death. This is also a fall, especially with regard to Ahaziah, that is in fulfillment of Yahweh's promise to Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21. Through the mouth of the prophet Elijah, Yahweh promised Ahab that he and his sons would be cut off and that their dynasty would come to an end. And what the author is doing in 2 Kings chapter 1, he's telling us how this is going to come about. Ahaziah is sick, so he summons messengers to go inquire of the false god Beelzebub. And just as Yahweh sent Elijah to confront Ahaziah's father, Ahab, so Yahweh sends Elijah to confront Ahaziah. And, and notice what is the issue here, right? Ahaziah is living as if Yahweh is not God, as if Yahweh is not relevant, as if he's not present to him and his kingdom. He is seeking, Ahaziah is seeking false gods. And I wonder if you can see in this question, did you notice that it was a question that Elijah asks in verse 6? Can you see in this question actually something of an invitation from Yahweh to Ahaziah to really forsake his consistent rebellion and to turn to God? The question that Elijah asked should be heard something like this. Ahaziah, is not Yahweh God? Is he not God? Why don't you seek him? Yahweh's inviting Ahaziah to turn from this false worship, from seeking after false gods, to, to turn to the true and living God. Do, do you see the kindness of God in this? Have you lived as though, have you lived as though God is irrelevant? Have you sought other counselors this past week? And notice something else too here. Yahweh calls the God of Ahaziah, God that he's seeking, uh, Beelzebub. Um, that's actually not the proper name for the God of Ekron. And, and here the, the author is, is, um, is kind of insulting the God of Ekron. Um, the, the true name of the God of Ekron is Beelzebul, right? And, and this is actually meant to raise kind of the, the profile of the Baal, the Baal God of Ekron. Uh, it's kind of meant to show his might and his, his majesty and strength. But, but when Yahweh calls the God of Ekron Beelzebub, um, which means Lord of the Flies, uh, Beelzebub, what he's saying is like, you're calling after this God who's the Lord over the, the little itty bitty flies. Why are, you, why are you calling after this, this God of little itty bitty flies when I'm the God of all creation? I'm the God of all creation. Shouldn't you come to me? The God of the flies, he can't really do anything for you. Shouldn't you come to Yahweh? Well, how often do we run to inferior deities when we're in need? Uh, crises often reveal really what we're trusting in, don't they? Who or what did you turn to in the, the last time you were in trouble? Ahaziah is facing a death crisis. 
And he turns, as he always has, sadly, to the false gods around him. Now, in the passage, Elijah, he, he disclosed, um, he, he's disclosed as one who wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And this, this reminds us of what we read about earlier in the service, right, with John the Baptist from Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist, he, he donned this attire that we see here. And clearly, if you remember from the scripture reading, that, that John came preaching a message of repentance. And, and having this, this in view, it's, it seems similar that Elijah is inviting Ahaziah actually to come to repentance, to turn and to serve Yahweh alone, recognizing that he and he alone is God. And, and the next scene in, in, in the next set of verses kind of illustrate this. Take a look at verses 9 to 15. Now, so read 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 9 to 15. Then the king sent to him, so he's sending him to Elijah. Then the king sent him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and sent to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered him, If I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came, the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him. O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord, of Yahweh, said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he, that's Elijah, he arose and went down with him to the king. So just pause there and take this scene in. It, it reveals to us Ahaziah's consistent, ongoing rebellion against Yahweh. He sends for Elijah really to be retrieved, right? Now, now here's a real question. Do you need 51 armed men to go and get one man, one to invite, just to invite for a conversation, one prophet to the king's court? Well, no, not unless you really mean to take him by force. Right? You don't need 51 armed men unless you mean this to be a hostile approach to confront the prophet of God. And you can tell, we can tell this is a, a hostile approach by how the first two commanders really address Elijah. They kind of put on airs, don't they? If you're a man of God, well, the first kind of announces what the king says, but the second announces the king's order. You will come down, Elijah. Right? And the second officer essentially reveals that the first officer's report, it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command, it was a demand. And a demand that he really meant to enforce. And what was the goal? 
Well, more than likely, the goal was to close the mouth of Elijah, right? More than likely, the goal was to silence the mouthpiece of God. For God's Word can, can really put a damper on the consistent pursuit of sin. In this, we see, I think, the foolishness of sin. Trying to silence God's Word is always unsuccessful. Moreover, it cannot and will not undo what God has said and done. When Elijah responds to these two commanders with the words, If I am a man of God, our minds ought to go back to what happened in 1 Kings chapter 17, where we first met Elijah. And the whole purpose of that chapter was actually to prove that Elijah was a man of God who spoke the word of God. 1 Kings 17 was the setup to 1 Kings 18. Do you remember what happened in 1 Kings 18? It was the contest on Carmel where Elijah prayed down fire from heaven in defeat of Baal. Why do these combatants get cooked? To remind Ahaziah of what happened to the prophets of Baal on Carmel. Right? The whole point of that contest at Carmel was that Yahweh was and is the one true God and that Baal was really no God at all. And that's the real issue here. Ahaziah has not been looking to Yahweh as the one true God. He's been looking to Baal. Baal's above. Twice, by fire from heaven, Ahaziah is warned by Yahweh. He should have remembered Carmel. And he should have repented. I love what one commentator said. He wrote, Yahweh is the real God. Baal, a sorry non-entity. But Ahaziah didn't get the point. When he has the urgent need for health care, he appeals to Baal. Baal, the loser. What do you do when someone is so dense, so thick, that he doesn't grasp what fire means? You send more fire. And that's what happened, right? The, the loss of the first and the second captain should have reminded Ahaziah that though he is the king of Israel, he is not the God of Israel. He cannot command a demand. He cannot order God's prophet around. For in doing so, he is, in essence, seeking to order and direct God himself. Elijah is a man of God. He does what God tells him to do. If that is coordinate with what the king says, then so be it. But if not, then he must obey God above man. Even the most powerful man in the kingdom. Here, here's the thing that Ahaziah doesn't seem to be getting at this point in time. Though Elijah, so through Elijah, Yahweh has thwarted every one of Ahaziah's attempts at rebellion. Right? Through Elijah, Yahweh stopped Ahaziah's messengers from consulting Baal. This was a kindness of God. Sometimes God gives people over to their sin. But here, Yahweh is saying, don't keep going after Baal. Come after me. I'm even going to divert your mission and invite you to, to direct your requests to me. Yes, our God is a, a jealous God. He wants all of our love. He wants our trust, all of it. He wants us not in part, but the whole. Through Elijah, Yahweh stopped 102 men from dragging Elijah to court. Yahweh has mercifully put up roadblocks all along Ahaziah's rebellious path. Christian, have you ever considered that when you are in rebellion against God, the, the roadblocks you are facing or the plans that you've made 
when they've been thwarted, have you considered that those might be overtures from God to turn and go another way? Have you considered that they may be a mercy of God? Ahaziah is nothing if not consistent and persistent. And so he sends a third captain in company. On this occasion, the captain does not command or demand. Instead, he he humbles himself before Elijah, doesn't he? He pleads for his life, which is precisely what Ahaziah should be doing, right? His life hangs in the balance. And so does this captain's life. Like everybody who's come before him, they've all gotten burned. This captain's life, it, it hangs in the balance as he approaches the prophet of God. Ahaziah's life hangs in the balance. And he should do what this captain does. He should plead for his life. He should humble himself before the Lord. The captain shows Ahaziah what his posture should be in God's presence. But not only that, right? The captain shows the nation of Israel what their posture should be before God, right? The larger message of this book is to the ancient people of God explaining to them why they are in exile. People of Israel reading this in exile are going, here's this captain who humbled himself before the Lord. He was a part of a people who were in sin against the living God. We are a part of a people who are in sin against the living God. We should humble ourselves to the Lord. God may yet be merciful to us. They were consistently unfaithful. That's what led them into exile. And here Yahweh is demonstrating through the life of this captain, humble yourself before the Lord. Offer a desperate pleading with God for mercy. This model, it's not just a good model for the ancient people of God. It's a good model for us too, right? This captain is fearful, and rightly so. But doesn't his pleading reveal a belief that deep down God actually is merciful? That he's ready and eager to forgive? That he's ready and eager to show compassion? That he's, he's patient and ready to spare his people from death and judgment? The Lord's patience with Ahaziah, his reminders of his mighty works on Carmel, and his invitation to believe that there is a God in Israel who can deliver him should lead him to change his ways. Will he? Will he humble himself under the mighty hand of God? Will he repent? Or will he be consistent and continue in his rebellion? Take a look at 1 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. This is the third commander. Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, said to the king, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? 
Well, in the end, Ahaziah, he gets his meeting with Elijah, but it's not on his terms. It's Yahweh who has granted this meeting, and it is Elijah who will deliver Yahweh's word. Ahaziah, he utters no word. He neither repents nor appeals for divine mercy. Elijah delivers the verdict. Ahaziah, you will not come down from this bed. He will surely die. And I wonder if those words sound familiar to you. You shall surely die. Are they not reminiscent of what Yahweh said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Didn't Yahweh say, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Sin brings death. Ahaziah lived a, a, consistently, a life consistently given over to sin and rebellion against the living God. And we should pray and ask for the Lord to keep each one of us from such a life. Notice too that in verse 17 the author is sure to confirm that he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. There is there's a certainty to God's promises. When God promises that the wages of sin is death, we can be sure that the wages of sin really, really is death. When God makes a promise, He keeps a promise. It is sure to come to pass. And once again, the author of Kings tells us that he's aware, right? He, he knows about the larger history of Ahaziah. And first, verse 18 there, he says to us, Oh friends, I, I know all that Ahaziah did. I, I know about Chronicles. I know about the king's annals. I know about all of Ahaziah's history. What I really want you to see in his life is a kind of consistency. It's not a good kind of consistency. It's the kind of consistency that's filled with wickedness and sin. It's the, the kind of consistency that is filled with a refusal to receive God's patient calls to repent even unto the end. It's the kind of consistency that refused to hear the word of God. What about us? Do we, do we live like Ahaziah? Do we live as if God is not real, not present, not personal, not powerful, not able? Do, do we live like Ahaziah? Do we place our, our trust in other gods, gifts, or goods of this kind and loving God? In moments of trial and triumph, who, who do we look to? To our shame, we have all rebelled against the God who made us. And one sin against the infinite, eternal, and just God is enough. It's enough. One sin is enough to justly condemn us to infinite and eternal punishment. And God has promised that He will judge sin. And by God's grace, He has also promised that He will save His people from their sins. God's faithfulness to His promises gives us hope. He promised that He would send His Son, and He did. Our hope is in King Jesus. And He lived a life exceedingly different from the lives of Jehoshaphat and Ahaziah. Jesus did not compromise His righteousness. Jesus did not consistently live in rebellion. No, His life, the whole of His life, every moment of His life was lived in personal, perpetual, and perfect consecration unto the God of Israel, unto our Heavenly Father. Jesus was without sin. Jesus went up to the cross, and the crowd called Him to come down, but He refused. 
For on the cross, he was bearing in his body the judgment due to our sins. Jesus went up to the cross and he died according to the word of the Lord. He was buried in a stone-sealed tomb, but three days after his death, according to the word of God, the Father raised him from the dead. And now Jesus calls us to repent, to humbly turn from our sins, and to trust him for eternal life. Do not continue to refuse God's gracious and merciful overtures to you. Young people, you especially have heard these overtures time and time again, over and over again. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Come to Jesus in faith. Each and every one of us ought to give our whole hearts to the Lord Jesus, offering them in grateful devotion and more fervent consecration which is what I want us to think about as we conclude. I would hazard a guess that there is not a single one of us who would want to identify with either Jehoshaphat or Ahaziah. Who wants to be known for living a life of compromise and contradiction? Uh, Who wants to be known as a kind of halfway Christian? And who wants to be known as one who consistently refuses uh, to hear the merciful pleadings of God? No one wants to be obstinate, headstrong, or stiff-necked. Not a single one of us wants to live as these kings have lived. Which means we have to look to the one king who has lived as they have not. We have to look to Christ alone. He's the only one who can save us. And he's the only one who can change us. Our state is as desperate as Ahaziah's. But the Lord Jesus can and will save. So we have to look to Christ and press ourselves into the mold of his life of love, of uncompromising righteousness and unwavering obedience. He is the king that we're looking for to come from heaven. And he is the king that we labor to look like and live like on earth. So by God's grace, let us, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith let's pray together